Amen. All right, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're now in chapter 6, verses 1 through 10 is today's text. We're now in part 13 of our series, Church Life. Say, Church Life. Now, before we even dive into the text, as always, text, I want to do a quick review from last week's text, uh, chapter 5, verses 17 through 25. I gave you three points, and the text was about caring for those who lead. Say that, caring for those who lead. And the first point was reward. Say that. Reward, that's in verses 17 through 18, and Paul is speaking specifically to the uh, remuneration of pastors and that the pastors who rule well, the pastors who lead well, are worthy of double honor. Now, I want you to remember this, that the phrase double honor, say double honor, doesn't mean that the pastor who's doing a great job gets paid double salary. You guys with me? The phrase double honor means double weight or double care, and it means on the one hand, they're compensating the pastors, taking care of them financially. On the other hand, is respecting the pastors, appreciating, esteeming, and following them. So we are to honor pastors in a double kind of way. They are to be generously compensated and also generously respected. If you got it, say got it. Paul then goes on to say, are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. The King James renders it as this, like this, especially they who labor, say labor, in the word and doctrine. So laboring in the word and doctrine, which is the number one priority and commitment of the pastor, laboring in the word and doctrine, evidences, evidences ruling well. Paul then says in verse 18, for, for Scripture says, I love that, do not muzzle an ox, while it is treading the, out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. So what he does, he combines an Old Testament reference with a New Testament reference. And the point is, if pastors are faithful in leading and feeding the people, then the church ought to be faithful and pay them, the pastors, adequately so that they, pastors, can devote their time and energy fully to serve the congregation by feeding them the Word of God. The second point was rebuke. Say that. That's in verses 19 through 21, and there's a way, in other words, Paul's saying there's a way to deal, uh, deal with pastors who have fallen into sin. And Paul wants to make sure that pastors are protected from false, unsupported accusations. Unless, he says, unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. So if, if two or three witnesses come up with the same, say same, accusation, the church needs to deal with it. If the pastor is in fact guilty of falling into sin, then the church must act upon that. Paul says those who sin, then he goes on, those who sin, speaking of unrepented sin, a sin that the pastor is not repenting of, are to be rebuked publicly or before all. And this could mean before the other pastors and elders or before the whole church or both. And this is the last step, say last step, in the disciplining process. And he says they are to be rebuked publicly. Why? Why? So that the others may take warning. Then Paul, what he does, he charges Timothy in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels. Elect angels are those who didn't rebel against God to keep these instructions referring to the discipline of the pastor if he gets out of line without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. The third point was review. Say review. Verses 22 to 25, in other words, review carefully, review carefully those who are being considered for leadership, that those considered for leadership are to be tested and examined. Can I get an amen? This now brings us to today's text, the title of the message is contentment, say that, 
Four points, if you're ready, say yes. Number one is the workers. Write that down, say that. The workers. And we're going to look at verse 1. And Paul writes, all who are under the yoke of slavery. And I want to stop there because I believe it's, it's important to say something about slavery in the Bible, about slavery in the first century in the Roman Empire. We talked about this before in our series from the book of Philemon. Now, I want to make it very, very clear that any form, any form of slavery is wrong. Amen? In the first century, in the Roman Empire, slaves made up about 40 to 50% of the population. The economy ran on the practice of slavery. Now, two, two ways, uh, two main ways a person became a slave by being a prisoner of war was one way. Uh, professional, professional slave dealers followed the Roman armies, and with each victory, people were captured and sold, excuse me, sold as slaves. The second way is this, to pay off debts, to pay off debts. And if you got yourself too far into debt, you could sell yourself uh, into slavery as a way to pay off your debts. Also, many, many poor people sold themselves into slavery to support their families. If you got it, say got it. Now, I want to say this. Slaves in the first century in the Roman world was not based on race. Okay, It was economic motivated rather than racially motivated. In fact, they were treated more like employees than anything else. Slavery, listen now, described in the New Testament times was very different from the cruel and inhumane practices that took place in our country uh, in the 16th and the 19th century, which was based on race. In the New Testament, say New Testament, some of the slaves were doctors, architects, hairdressers, accountants, managers, carpenters, secretaries, musicians, teachers, artists, and librarians. And it was, uh, it was not uncommon, listen now, it was not uncommon for a master to teach a slave his own trade. In fact, some masters and slave, slaves, listen now, became close friends. Are you guys with me so far? Now, I know many ask the question, why doesn't the Bible come right out and condemn slavery? I'll tell you why. Rather than a direct attack on slavery, Christianity disarmed it. It unraveled slavery from within by radically changing the relationship between slaves and masters. Christianity undermined the evils of slavery, listen now, by changing the hearts of slaves and masters. Someone say amen. And you see, Paul and others in the New Testament didn't call for a, a violent revolution against the institution of slavery, which might have failed miserably, yet through the transformation brought, say transformation, brought by the gospel, you guys got that? They did effectively destroy the foundations of slavery, racism, greed, and class, and class hatred. Can someone say amen? Now I want you to get this. Throughout Scripture, God's plan, if you read the Bible, Throughout Scripture, God's plan to change the world was never by human or political revolution. Rather, it was by the gospel. Amen? Warren Wiersbe said this. This is one reason, one reason Paul and the early missionaries did not go around preaching against the sinful institution of slavery. Such a practice would have branded the church as a militant group trying to undermine the social order 
and the progress of the gospel would have been greatly hindered. You see, the church itself was a place where slavery was destroyed. So I want you to follow me here, okay? It was not uncommon, and I love this, it was not uncommon for a master and a slave to go to the, to the same church together. You guys with me? Where the slave would be an elder, the slave would be an elder in the church, and the master was expected to submit to the slave's spiritual leadership. And you see, what you see in the Bible as it relates to slavery in the first century is that as a Christian slave, you need to make the best of your situation. And if you were a slave owner who then gets saved, then you need to come to grips that slavery is the wrong treatment of another human being. And that now a slave owner and a slave are one in Christ. Galatians 3.28 says this, and Paul writes, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for all are one, say all are one, in Christ Jesus. So Christianity is a universal equalizer. Everyone is equal at the cross. Can someone say amen? Now, in the text, Paul's counsel for the master and slave relationship. Now, you got to get this. Paul's counsel for the master and slave relationship can be applied to the employer-employee relationship today. Okay? If you got it, say amen. Back to the text. All who are under the yoke of slavery. The word yoke literally has to do with being in submission to someone in authority. So all who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy full, uh, worthy of full respect. Now I want to stop there. Paul, Paul is writing to slaves who are Christians, and their masters are not. Got it? Right here. Their masters are not. So this is the charge to the employees who work for an unbeliever. If you got it, say got it. Now notice Paul doesn't say that their masters are worthy of respect or worthy of honor, rather should consider their masters worthy of respect. Now let's treat them and regard them as though they were. Why? Well, let's read on. So that God's name, do you get that? God's name, referring to his person, his character, and his works. God's person, God's character, and God's works. So that God's name, and our teaching, Paul says, in other words, the whole Christian doctrine may not be slandered, in other words, reviled, in other words, blasphemed. Listen, Christian employees should never be known for being lazy or disrespectful. They should be known for working with all their heart. They should be known for being respectful because they are seeking to please God and to honor His name. Can I get amen? Now, if you're safe, say amen. When we work hard and honor our employers, friends, it glorifies God. But when we're not good, hard workers, and disrespectful to our supervisors, it brings shame to God's name. Listen, disrespectful attitudes and laziness on the job brings dishonor to God's name, and what it does, it prevents evangelistic opportunities. So are you guys ready for the lesson? Here we go. Do not bring contempt on the name of God. Let's say that. Do not be, bring contempt 
on the name of God. That word contempt means state of disgrace or, or ridicule. It means shame, discredit, or dispute. That's what contempt means. And you see, as a Christian, the way we work and the way that we act is a public witness to the name of God. Are you guys with me? A public testimony, if you will, to the character of God and to the truth of his word. When they look at us, they should see, listen now, when they look at us in the workplace, they should see the character of God. Amen? And I want to say this, follow me now, his name, God's name is on the line in everything that you and I, that we do, including our work. And if we prove to be faithful and prove to be loyal and obedient, hardworking, submissive employees, we make a great statement for the name of God. If we don't, if we don't, we bring contempt on his name. Now remember, God's name is on the line. Say that. God's name is on the line. Now if you're saved, say amen. Listen now, at your job, people are watching you. If you claim and call yourself a Christian, people are watching you. You guys with me? So my question is, are we representing his name well? Do they see the character of God in our lives? Amen? Are we working hard and being respectful and representing the name of God well? Verse 2, those who have believing masters. Now he shifts from unbelieving masters to now, what? Who? Believing masters are not to show less respect for them because they are brothers and fellow believers. Instead, they are to serve, this is what he says, they are to serve them even better. Because those who benefit from their service are believers and dear or slash devoted to them. These are the things, what are the things, referring to what Paul had already said, you are to teach and urge on them. Paul is simply saying this. Now listen, listen, Christians. If your master, if your boss is a believer, don't slack off in your responsibilities. You guys with me? You see, a believing slave might think that they can just, you know, now just, you know, just kind of like just kick back and take it easy because their master is a believer. Well, we're brothers in Christ or brothers and sisters in Christ, and so therefore we're brothers. I'm cool. You know, I can come in late whenever I want, do whatever I want. No, no, that's not what he's saying. Don't do that, okay? Listen, you and your master, your boss, are equal in Christ, but in the workplace, say in the workplace, your master, your boss, is to be respected and honored. Amen? Now, if you're safe, say Amen. What he's saying, don't take advantage of your boss if they're a believer. Work as hard as you can, right? Serve them even better. So here's a lesson. You ready for the lesson? Honor your boss. Say that. Some of you are like, huh? Huh? Right? Okay. And you do this, you do this by respecting them and serving them. Let's go back to the text. I want to point out something. They are not to show less respect, say respect, for them, then he says they are to serve, say serve them even better. Listen, respect and serve are terms that should never die in the heart of the Christian. Amen? Never. We should always respect others and always have, have the disposition of serving them. As Christians, we should be known for respect and service. We should be known for being the hardest workers in the workplace. And listen now, and 
always being on time. Amen? And working hard. So that's the workers. Say the workers. Number two is the wicked. Write that down. Say that. The wicked. And Paul here, he's is warning Timothy about, again, here we go again, about false teachers. Verses 3 through 5. Stay with me. If you're with me, say amen. If anyone teaches false doctrine, in other words, different doctrine, strange teaching, things that are not part of God's word, and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching. I want to stop there. Paul's like, Timothy, in contrast, Timothy, to the things that you're teaching, you're teaching sound doctrine, truth of Jesus Christ, godly teaching. In contrast to that, Timothy, they, okay, these false teachers, they're going to come along and teach something different than the true word of God. And you see that they, these false teachers, they refuse to adhere to, hold fast to, stick to the sound instruction and doctrine of God's word. And so they misuse the word of God. And what Paul does now, and I love this now, Paul now gives a description of, of who these false teachers are in their false doctrine. Verse 4, he is conceited, that's prideful, and understand nothing. So false teachers think they know something when they actually know nothing. They're conceited, prideful, when they should actually be humble. Okay? They have an inflated opinion of themselves. So let's read on. He, speaking of the false teacher, false teachers, has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, verse 5, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth. I want to stop there. These false teachers are always interested in controversial questions and disputes about various things, things that really don't matter. Right? You guys with me? Listen, they're not interested in God. They're not interested in God's word or true godliness. They just want to argue about something and cause discord in the church. They want to argue about non-essentials. They're wrong in the way they think. They're wrong in the conclusions they make about the truth and the way they interact with others who don't agree with them. They're only out for themselves. That's what Paul is saying. Let's read on. And who think, get this now, who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. You guys get that? In other words, these false teachers, they see spirituality as a business venture or a money-making tool. And they would say, hey, follow their teaching because this will lead you to wealth. You'll get rich. And this is a central bad doctrine that Paul is zeroing in on. Now, friends, I don't know if you've noticed or know this, but there's a lot of preaching and teaching today that just focuses on what you can get. Are you guys with me? That, that you will be rich and wealthy, that you will attain material success. Now, you may experience financial and material success as a Christian, but that's not what the Christian life is all about. Amen? The Christian life is living a sacrificial life to the glory and for the glory of God. 
Therefore, as Christians, our lives are no longer about what, what can we get out of it, but what can we give. Amen? What can we give to the kingdom of God? How can we serve God and others? The Christian life is not about getting friends. It's not. It's about giving because we can never outgive what God has given to you and I. Amen? Now let's go back to the text. I'm going to read it from the King James because I love what it says in the King James at the very end of verse 5. Perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain, speaking of financial gain, is godliness. Then he says this in the King James. From such, speaking of false teachers and their teaching, withdraw thyself. From such, withdraw thyself. Paul doesn't want Timothy or any other Christian to be hanging around or even associating with these false teachers. You guys with me? And I want to say this. If the church is to become a pillar and support of the truth, it needs to cut them off and shut them down. Amen? Say the workers. Come on, say the wicked. Number three is the wise. Come on, the wise. Write that down, the wise. Look at verse six with me. Paul says, but godliness. You guys get that? It's a contrast from verse five. But godliness. In other words, godliness is the desire to be Christ-like. You want to be godly, be Christ-like. But godliness with contentment is great gain. So one of the keys to godliness is what? Contentment. So, so be content. Now I want to say this. This doesn't mean that we should never want to achieve something or desire to be promoted or to get a pay raise. There's nothing wrong with that, okay? The Bible isn't against success. The Bible's not against achievement or accomplishments. But if those things, listen now, if those things are the main priority or the main ambition, if they are the driving force behind our lives instead of the driving more like Jesus, that's when it's wrong. You guys with me? And we will not, trust me, we will not be content. Then Paul reminds us, verse 7, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. I'm going to read that again so you guys get it. Okay? We brought nothing into the world, right? And we what? Can take nothing out of it. Hey, listen, I was there when all my kids were born. And when my kids were born, none of them came out with clothes, a wallet, or a purse. Amen? They came out naked. And friends, we came into this world, all of us, carrying nothing, wearing nothing, owning nothing. And I'm reminded what Job said in Job 121a, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return. Amen? Keep that in mind as you live your life. Verse 8, but if we have, I love this, I love this, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. I'm going to read that again. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Question, will we be content with that? Will we be content with that? Because we all, let's be honest, we all, to a certain degree, struggle with contentment. Everybody does. And if you say you don't, you're lying. Okay? 
we all struggle to a certain degree with contentment. Because we see something, okay, we think we're content, and we should be content, but we see something on TV or an ad or on your iPhone, right, and you say, I want that. And you think in your mind, I need that to be content. And Paul says, as long as we have something to eat and something to wear, we should be good. We should be content. Amen? And you see, false teachers say we need more, but God says we just need enough. And Jesus had something to say about this in Matthew 6, verses 25 to 34. I'm going to read it to you because it's so powerful. Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink. Then he goes on to say, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Then he says, look at the birds of the air. Look at them, right? They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet, and yet, saying yet. Come on, saying yet. Your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor. They do not spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear, for the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. This is the verse. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you as well. Therefore, do not, say do not, worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You guys ready for the lesson? Here we go. True prosperity. Say that. True prosperity. Listen, the real gain or prosperity we ought to be aiming for isn't financial, isn't material, but spiritual. Amen? It doesn't come from having stuff. It doesn't come from having money. It comes from Christ. It's a Listen, it's a life not of self-sufficiency, but Christ-sufficiency. And Paul uses a related word for contentment when he writes to the Philippians. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13, where Paul says, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned, say learned, 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 to be content, say content, whatever the circumstance. Did you guys get that? I know what it is to be in need, he says, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned, love this, the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Here's the secret. 13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That, that verse, that whole, in context, is about contentment. You guys with me? And Paul's saying, I'm content in whatever circumstance I'm in, Paul's saying. Why? Because I know that Christ himself will provide for me. If you're saved, say amen. 
Be content in who you are in Christ and what you have in Christ. Amen? Y'all with me this morning? Come on, someone say amen. Okay? Say the, say the workers. Say the wicked. Say the wise. Number four is the wealthy. Write that down. I got to hurry up here, okay? The wealthy. And here Paul, what he does, he addresses the problem that monetary and material ambition can pose in the life of a believer. We're talking about a believer, okay? Verse 9, people who want to get what? Come on, say it. Rich fall into what? Temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. Listen, church. Listen, brothers and sisters in Christ. If your focus in life is to become wealthy, is to become rich, if that's your life focus, then you're setting yourself up for trouble. You guys with me? Verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now, I want to say this. There's a lot of Christians who misquote misinterpret this verse, and they say that money is the root of all evil. No, no, it's not. First of all, friends, it's the love of money, okay? Not money in and of itself. Money's not bad. Say money's not bad. But the love, the love of money is the obsession with it and the covetousness and need and greed of it is. Also, I want to point out something to you. The love of money is a root, not the root is a root of all kinds of evil, indicating that the love of money is one of the roots of evil. There are many, many other roots of evil. If you got it, say got it. So for the love of money is a, a root of all kinds of evil. So money here in the text is not condemned here, but the love of it is. You've heard me say this many times, money is a wonderful servant but a lousy master. Also, I've said this many times, money can buy you everything but happiness and take you anywhere but heaven. Amen? Let's read on. Some people, eager for money, have wondered, in the Greek that phrase, have wondered, is, means have been seduced. Okay? Some people, eager for money, have wondered or been seduced from the faith and pierced themselves selves, excuse me, with many griefs. Now, i got to tell you something. I, I know some believers who are walking with the Lord, on fire for God, serving God, but they got caught up in making money. And they got so caught up in making money that money took priority over their walk with Christ. They're not even going to church. They're not even serving God anymore. I've seen it, friends. Not to mention, friends, how many foolish, wicked things, right, have been done over money. People fight over money. Families split over money. People divorce over money. What about people who've been murdered, murdered over money? Now, I I love Forensic Files. I watch it. I do. It's fascinating to me, okay? And the majority of those episodes have to do with someone killing someone because of money. Inheritance, right? or insurance policies. How about people, listen now, who sold their souls for money? 
Listen, when you make your life, when you make your life all about money, all about making money, then you will find yourself pierced, pierced, as Paul says, with all kinds of sorrows. And I want to say this. Greed will destroy you. Greed will deceive you. Greed will disappoint you. And not to mention greed in one area will almost certainly lead to greed in another. You see, greed, what it does, greed leads you away from God and dependency on Him and leads you away from Jesus and satisfaction in Him. You see, at the root of a love for money is an idol. Say idol. It's, it's, it's a false god. And false gods, we know this, right? False gods never satisfy. And they never give you what they promise to give you. Right? False gods will rob you of the happiness, of the joy, and the peace and contentment God gave you the day you met Jesus. You guys with me? So two lessons and I'll let you guys go, okay? First one is this. Be generous. Look at your neighbor. Yeah, look at them and say be generous. Huh? Why? Because listen now, the remedy to being free from greed and covetousness is generosity. So practice, practice, practice generosity. Now I want you to jump to verse 18 of this chapter. We're going to cover that next week. Verse 18. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. What God wants from us believers is an open hand, not a tight fist. Open hand, not a tight fist. Some of you are so tight you squeak when you blink. Hmm? When God, listen, when God blesses us, say when God blesses us, when God blesses us, he blesses you and I for a reason. Not to keep it to yourself, but to bless others. God blesses you to be a blessing to others. And there are, there are two things I can remember my parents taught me. Okay? Be a hard worker. Well, three, be a hard worker, be respectful, and be generous, mijo. Be generous. Amen? God wants us to have open hands, not tight fists. The second lesson is this. Stay close to Jesus. Stay close to Jesus. Stay close to Jesus in doctrine and in life. And you will find when you stay close to Jesus in doctrine, truth, and in life, walking the light, you will find true peace and true lasting contentment. Let's all stand. Come on. Let's all stand. Amen. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for your word and for all that was said this morning. Oh, that we would find true contentment. And Lord, we know where to find it. It's in you.